So this is uh, Shabbat number four out of six, when I'm going to be preaching directly from notes. Not my style. During the counting of the Omer season, the 50 days between Passover and Shavuot, I'll be giving sermons based on our Mishkan David, Tenants of Faith. All of our 12 Tenants of Faith are listed on our website, mishkandavid.org. Thus far, I've given sermons about our tenants about the Word of God, the nature of God, atonement, and salvation. Today, I speak about tenants numbers 8, 9, and 12, which are centered around the Gentiles. So I will read the tenants as they are written, bulleted out. We believe it was God's plan from the beginning to reconcile all nations to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through the Messiah. We believe that all Gentiles, people who are not physical descendants of Jacob, who trust in Yeshua, are spiritually grafted into Israel. Gentiles are bestowed all the blessings and promises given to Israel by God and are granted the privilege of following the Torah in liberty, having it written, having it written upon their hearts through the new covenant. And the third tenet, number 12, we believe that we are in unity with the Christian church. While we differ from the Christian church in some practices, customs, and even theologies, as long as we agree on the basic tenets of faith, we do not consider the Christian church to be apostate, pagan, or out of favor with God, whether or not they understand or practice the Torah-based aspects of our faith. We are one with our Christian brothers and sisters. And I will get into details on all of that. First, God's plan to reconcile all nations to himself. Isaiah 49, 6, he says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant. He's talking, this is a prophecy about Yeshua. It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back those of Israel I have kept, I will also make you, Yeshua, a light of the nations, so that my salvation, what's the Hebrew word, what's the Hebrew word for salvation? Yeshua, Jesus, may reach the end of the earth. This is a prophecy about Yeshua, the servant. It's in the same section of Isaiah, which speaks about the suffering servant. It's one of the, part of the four servant songs of the end of the book of Isaiah. And as you correctly said, the Hebrew word for salvation is Yeshua. If you read it that way, I will make you a light of the nation so that my Yeshua may reach the end of the earth. Every person from the nations, from around the world, who believes in the God of Israel and in the atoning work of his son, Yeshua, every person is a fulfillment of prophecy. Did you get that? Every person who believes in the God of Israel and in the atoning work of his son is a prophecy fulfilled. 
you are a prophecy fulfilled. It says in Zechariah 2 verse 11, many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. And Isaiah 56 verse 8 says, the Lord God who gathers the dispersed of Israel declares, I will yet gather others to them, to those already gathered. These promises, these prophecies are fulfilled when you, who are a Gentile, believe in Yeshua. These prophecies are fulfilled when a Gentile nation believes in Yeshua, when the Gentile puts away a false god, believes in the one true God of Israel, and believes in the death, believes that the death of his son provides full forgiveness for you. When you believe that, you are prophecy fulfilled. All of the prophecies I read and more are fulfilled by you, Gentiles, when you believe in him. The fact that God revealed himself to the people of Israel, the Jewish people, and here you are, those of you who are not Jewish, believing in the God of Israel, trusting in the Jewish Messiah, don't underestimate it. It's prophetic. It's prophecy fulfilled. The fact that billions of Gentile Christians around the globe believe in the God of Israel, the fact that billions of Gentile Christians around the globe believe in the God of Israel and trust in the Jewish Messiah is nothing short of a supernatural miracle. Nothing short. Jewish people are still waiting for the Messiah to come. I tell you that no Messiah that Judaism is awaiting will accomplish this better than Yeshua already did. And this was always, always his plan. I speak to you Gentiles, you are not God's plan B. It has always been his plan A to not just be the God of Israel, the God of the Jews, but the God of the whole world. Romans 3, 28 to 30 says, For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of Torah. Or is God the God of the Jews only? He is, is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, is one. Zechariah 14.9 says, and the Lord, and we read it every week, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord shall be one, and his name one. So let me just take it back and give you a little bit of definition of these terms, Jew and Gentile, since we see them commonly referred to in the New Testament. So what is a Jew? A Jew is a physical descendant of Jacob or someone who converts to the Jewish religion. That's the definition of a Jew. You're either a physical descendant of Jacob or you're someone who converts to the Jewish religion. There's a natural lineage aspect and a faith aspect when it comes to being a Jew. There are many Jews that have no faith but are still natural descendants of Jacob. They are still Jews by lineage. I have many in my family. And it's a very different because other faiths is just, you can't be born a Christian. You can't be born many other faiths. In Jew, you're born a Jew. It's a lineage and a faith. 
So those are the Jewish people. The Jews are the physical descendants of Jacob, independent of, of, of belief, and someone who converts to the Jewish religion. A Gentile is everyone else. The Hebrew origin of the word Gentile is goy, or in, he, or in plural, goyim. Goy, goy means nation. Goyim means the nations or the people of the nations. I want to make it very, very clear, this is not a derogatory term. It's not a derogatory term. And I have to say, both Jews and Gentiles use the term Jew and Gentile or Jew and Goy derogatory, as derogatory ways. You know, I've been, I've been to stores and people have, t you know, I've tried to haggle and they say, you're going to Jew me down. So the word is used derogatory. But also, believe me, I know growing up in Judaism that the Goyim is, is used derogatory. I tell you right now that in this place, neither are derogatory. The Bible uses them both, Jew and Gentile. So they're, they're biblical terms. They are not derogatory. They are not pejorative. When a Gentile accepts the Lord, there is a spiritual, supernatural miracle that takes place. A Gentile, through faith, spiritually becomes a member of Israel. Ephesians 2, 12 to 13 says, remember that you were at the time, this is before a Gentile was a believer, separate from the Messiah, excluded from the people of Israel, strangers to the covenants of the promise, and having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Messiah Yeshua, you who were previously far away have been brought near by the blood of Messiah. It goes on in verse 19 and 20. So then you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Did you know that in most places in the New Testament, when Paul writes what's translated the saints, it often refers to the Jewish people? You are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Messiah, Yeshua himself, being the cornerstone. You are spiritually part of Israel. Prior to Yeshua and our belief in his atonement, for a Gentile to become part of Israel, you'd effectively need to convert to Judaism. This is what it means in Numbers 15, verse 16, where it says there's one law and one ordinance for you and for the stranger who re resides in you. This pertains to Gentiles who fully dwell with the people of Israel, live as them, participate in all aspects of Torah life alongside of them. In Yeshua, wherever you are around the world, whether you're in proximity to Jews or not, whether you're in proximity to synagogues or not, whether you're in proximity to Jerusalem or not, through your faith, you are spiritually part of Israel. You can live in Antarctica, and if you accept Yeshua, you are part of Israel. And when God sees the full nation of Israel, he sees you. Along with the Jewish people. Along with the Jewish people. Not in replace of the Jewish people. There is a theology in Christianity called replacement theology, or supersessionism, which claims and states that the church is not part of Israel, but is actually the new Israel. In this view, Christians are seen as the true heirs of the promises made to Abraham and the spiritual replacements of the Jewish people as is chosen. The Jewish people are seen as having forfeited 
their special relationship with God by rejecting Jesus as the Messiah and are no longer considered to be the chosen people of God. We at Mishkan David reject this theology in the strongest terms. Ephesians 3.16, Ephesians 3.6 says that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, co-heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise in Messiah Yeshua through the gospel. Fellow heirs with who? The Jewish people. In the book of Romans, Paul wrote in chapter 11 a full dissertation about the Gentile relationship and heart and love to is for Israel. I would like to read you the entire chapter. Romans 11. I say then, God has not rejected his people. Has he? Far from it. For I too, this is Paul talking, and now me. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Well, I'm of the tribe of Levi, but just saying. God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew. Or do you know, not know what the scripture says about the passage in, uh, about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant, according to God's gracious choice. There are always Jewish believers. Always Jewish believers. If it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works, since otherwise grace is no longer grace. So what then, what Israel is seeking, it has not attained. They are seeking salvation through the works of the Torah. What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it. And the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block. Listen, the stumbling block. And a retribution to them. May their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs continually. I say then, did they stumble? Remember David said a stumbling block. I, this is Paul talking again. I say then, did they not? They, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall. Did they? Far from it. But by their wrongdoing. Salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Do you know you have a divine mandate to make the Jewish people jealous with what you have? Are you awakened to that, that you have a mandate to make them jealous? Not to just say, we replaced you, you're done, and we're the new Israel. Do you know that you have a mandate from God to make a Jewish person jealous with your relationship with God? Now, if they're wrongdoing, the Jewish unbelievers, proves to be riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. Therefore, insofar as I am apostle to the Gentiles, listen to what he says here. Insofar, 
therefore, insofar as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, listen, I magnify my ministry if somehow I may move my own people to jealousy and save some of them. Even though he was an apostle to the Gentiles, if he was able to save one of his Jewish brothers, his ministry is magnified. For And listen, for if their rejection proves to be the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. Who's the first piece of dough? The Jewish people. Who's the lump? Everyone else. If the root is holy, the branches are as well. Who's the root? Israel. Who are the branches? You, you and me. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partakers with them, with them, with them, with them, with them. Okay, 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 okay. I felt it, and you did too. Partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Listen, do not be arrogant towards the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember, it is not you who supports the root. The root supports you. You will say then. Apparently Paul knew how they were going to react to that one. Branches were broken off, so I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. I spoke a little bit about losing your salvation. This one seems to talk about our relationship and attitude towards Israel. See then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, for otherwise you too will be cut off. Yikes. We should go back to the... <laughs> and they also, the unbelieving Jews, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off by what is by nature a wild olive tree, this is your life and your religion prior to Yeshua, cut off from that and grafted in contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree. Do you understand that analogy? Cut off from a wild olive tree, grafted into the cultivated olive tree, Israel, how much more will these, who are the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not want you, brothers and sisters, to be uninformed of this mystery. See how important this is to Paul? So that you will not be wise in your own estimation. That a partial hardening, partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Just it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion 
you will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. In relation to the gospel, they, the unbelieving Jews, are enemies on your account, meaning they were persecuting the Christians. But in relation to God's choice, they are beloved on account of the fathers, for the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. Have you ever used that verse about yourself? It's about God's calling on the Jews. The gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God, you were disobedient, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience. So these now have been disobedient, the unbelieving Jews, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. Do you understand that? You were disobedient and were shown mercy. So, because of their disobedience, you can show them the mercy of God. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. Oh, the depths of the riches, both the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who can become his counselor or who has first given to him that it would be paid back to him for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. That last little paragraph is Paul just losing it and just <laughs> gives the praise to God. I hope that all of that stuck with you. Because it sticks with me. So back to the tenant. We believe that all Gentiles, people who are not physical descendants of Israel, who trust, of Jacob, who trust in, is, who trust in Yeshua, are spiritually grafted into Israel. Gentiles are bestowed all the blessings and the promises given to Israel by God and are granted the privilege of following the Torah in liberty, having it written upon their hearts through the new covenant. Being a part of Israel, you have the invitation to join with the Jewish people, the richness of the olive tree and all it has to offer. Now, if you were here for the first sermon on tenant number one, I said, remember, this is an invitation, not an obligation. It's an invitation. And let me clarify, Judaism categorizes the Torah, the, the law, into three buckets. They're not perfect. Ethical laws, like don't murder, don't steal, more, I'm sorry, ethical laws, which is about justice. Moral laws, don't steal, don't commit adultery. And ceremonial or ritual laws. I use the term cultural. That probably wasn't the best term. Ceremonial laws are about Shabbats and dress wear and eating and things like that. So those are like the three basic categories of the Torah. I stand by my statement when I went over tenant one that Gentiles... If the, Gentiles, if the Gentiles were called to start keeping all the ritual aspects of Torah, the New Testament would be crystal clear about it. But remember, it says in Ephesians 2, that you were at once separate from the Messiah, excluded from the people of Israel, strangers to the covenant, but now in Messiah, you have been brought near. 
This means that all the beauty of Torah life, of culture, of Jewish culture, of our heritage, of our instructions, are yours to partake of and to enjoy. Of the Torah, listen to it this way. Of the Torah, Moses said, behold, I set before you this day a blessing and a curse. Galatians 3.13 says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. If Moses set before us a blessing and a curse and Messiah redeemed us from the curse, what is left? Blessing. As a Jew and a representative of Israel, I tell you this. What God gave to my people, what I have, is yours to partake of freely. The spiritual nation, the blessings, the word that God gave to my people is yours to partake of. You are welcome in this nation. I tell you that as a representative. You are welcome here. And I encourage you that it is a blessing to take hold of your heritage that's listed out in the Torah that many churches say are just done away with, I tell you that the curse of it was done away with. The blessing is yours to partake of if you choose to do so. Isaiah 56, verse 6 and 7, says the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to attend to his service and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath, so as not to profane it, and holds firmly to my covenant, even those I'll bring to my holy mountain, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Yeshua used that verse. Now I'm going to go into our tenant about our unity with the church. So again, the tenet reads as follows. We believe that we are in unity with the Christian church while we differ from the Christian church in some practices, customs, and even theologies. As long as we agree on the basic tenets of faith, we do not consider the Christian church to be apostate, pagan, or out of favor with God whether or not they understand or practice the Torah-based aspects of our faith. We are one with our Christian brothers and sisters. I know in this place there's disagreement with that. But I stand firmly on that. I don't want the congregational stance to be any different from that. If Christians do not adhere to our tenets of faith, to our tenets of faith, we're not in unity. If they don't believe that Yeshua is God, we're not in unity. If they don't support Israel, we're not in unity. If they believe in replacement theology, we're not in unity. If we are in unity on the basic tenets, we are in unity. But celebrating Yeshua's birth on December 25th and putting up Christmas trees and hunting for Easter eggs, these practices, although we don't do them here as a congregation, and they do... Let's be fact-based. They do have a root in paganism. We will not sever our ties with the church, nor will we blankly, blanketly label the church as engaging in paganism. 
We will, however, always be open and honest about the history of some of these practices. Here's an analogy, and I want to say this very sensitively because it is an extremely sensitive topic. If you're offended by this topic, I sincerely apologize. It is not my intent, honestly. There is a debate in America about how much of racism should be openly discussed and taught, especially in schools. And there's a political divide over that. In my opinion, and I'm speaking for myself, we should always be able to openly and honestly talk fact-based about racism, about how it was embedded into the fabric of our country, and even how it impacts or can impact society today. We can have a discussion, we can keep it fact-based, we can listen to people's experiences, and we can learn and grow and empathize without labeling anyone as being a racist. And both sides, by the way, of the political aisle are so freely label others. You're a racist, you're a communist, you're a socialist, you're a nationalist. It's labels without relationship, without proximity to people. It's armchair quarterbacking. Anyway, in the same way, we can openly discuss the pagan historical roots of Christianity and have a candid dialogue and not paint modern-day Christians as being pagan, even if some of the observances have remained. So here's some facts. This is just fact-based. Fact-based. Fact. The New Testament church, meaning what we see in the New Testament, it was not divorced from Judaism, but was firmly linked to it. In Acts 15, when the famous debate happened called the Jerusalem Council, the apostles concluded that the Gentiles had to keep a small subset of commandments to maintain their fellowship with Jews and not be an offense to them. And James concluded in verse 21, he said, For from ancient generations, Moses has those who preach him in every city, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. This means that while the apostles did not need to or want to bog down the Gentiles with all the intricacies of Jewish law, the law would be widely available to be heard and learned for those who seek it. It presumes the Gentile have the opportunity to hear and learn about Torah in the synagogues. You Gentiles being here, in a messianic Jewish synagogue is the closest thing we have to that New Testament model that exists today. Fact, not a single place in the New Testament is the Sabbath changed to Sunday. I am not trying to be offensive. I'm just, trying, I'm just being fact-based. And don't rise up a little ha-ha-ha. Please don't. Our posture must always be humble. Not a single place in the New Testament is the Sabbath changed to Sunday. Every single place it's referenced, it's the seventh day of the week. Fact, the shift from Saturday to Sunday was in part influenced by Roman the Roman practice of venerating the sun on Sunday, which made it a popular day for public gatherings. Of course, it was also influenced by the fact that Yeshua rose on a Sunday. 
Eusebius, a 4th century Christian historian, argued that the celebration of Easter on Sunday was intended to replace the Roman festival of the sun. Fact, the Council of Laodicea in 364 AD affirmed Sunday as the day of worship for Christians and discouraged the observance of the Jewish Sabbath day. Canon 29 in their output reads, quote, Christians must not Judaize by resting on the Sabbath, but must work on that day, rather honoring the Lord's day, and if they can, resting then as Christians. But if any shall be found to be Judaizers, let them be anathema from Christ. Anathema means excommunicated, by the way. Excommunicated by keeping the Jewish Sabbath. So while, and I mean this sincerely, I honor Christians worshiping on Sunday, and I firmly state that worshiping on Sunday is no sin. You can worship every day. I will state that stating that God changed the Sabbath is a sin. Because we're not supposed to change the word of God. Deuteronomy 4, 2 says, You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Does it mean that modern-day Christians are sinning? No. God will deal with those folks that would live 1,700 years ago. But it's not a sin to worship on a Sunday. I would go to a church service anytime on a Sunday and feel completely comfortable. Fact. The King James Version in Acts 12, verse 4, mentions Easter. But do you know what the Greek word that it's translated from? Pascha. A clear reference to Passover. In fact, in many languages, even today, it's not called Easter. It's still called Pascha or Pasqua. Pascha clearly means Passover. This is because the original celebration of Yeshua's resurrection was, in the Bible, associated with Passover. Fact, the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD formally separated the celebration of Yeshua's resurrection from Passover. This was clearly not the intent of the apostles and the writers of the New Testament. To quote the letter regarding Easter, the output of the Nicene Council, quote, for it is unbecoming beyond measure that on this holiest of festivals we should follow the customs of the Jews. Henceforth, let us keep Easter not according to the Jewish calculation, but according to the correct calculation of our own holy fathers. Fact. Some of the customs of both Christmas and Easter have roots in paganism. For example, the timing of Easter is determined by the lunar calendar, and the vernal equinox, which were important dates in many pagan calendars as well. Additionally, some symbols of fertility and rebirth, such as eggs and rabbits, have been associated with pagan spring festivals. The date of Christmas, December 25th, was originally a pagan holiday that celebrated the winter solstice and the rebirth of the sun. Early Christians adopted this date as the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ in part to make Christianity more appealing to pagan converts. The Yule log was a common pagan symbol of the winter solstice that represented the return of the sun. The Christmas tree, the use of evergreen trees as a symbol of Christmas, is thought to have originated in pagan traditions where evergreens were seen as the symbols of eternal life 
and rebirth. These are historical facts, but I want to be clear that I and we in no way implicate modern-day Christians. Then why do we say in our tenant, if all these things are facts, why do we say in our tenant that we don't consider the Christian church to be apostate or pagan or out of favor of God? And why are we, do we say that we are one with the Christians? The question really is, are modern-day Christians who celebrate Yeshua's birth on December 25th or put up a Christmas tree as a decoration, if they're worshiping the Christmas tree, of course they're being pagan. If they put up a Christmas tree as a decoration or have their kids hunt for Easter eggs, are they engaging in paganism or are they not since the pagan god has been removed, oh, about 1,700 years ago? Is God upset with Christians for keeping these traditions even though they love the Lord Yeshua with all their hearts and all their souls and all their mights? Is it paganism, a Christmas tree, or is it a harmless tradition? Listen to me. We can debate this answer. You're going to get different answers from folks you talk to here. But here's what speaks to me, speaks to me. Yeshua said a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. And let me tell you something humbly. More people have been saved at a church Easter service or a Christian service than at every single Mishkan David Shabbat service from the beginning. Who am I to judge this? God would not bless it so much with so many people coming into a knowledge of him and a knowledge of Yeshua if it was such an abhorrence to God. Gamaliel, I love that the New Testament gives a nod to the Rabbi Gamaliel, since he's so revered still in Judaism. Now, the Jewish people were persecuting the Jewish believers, and Gamaliel, this rabbi, a major rabbi of the time, still very venerated, essentially said, don't persecute him. Leave it alone. He said in Acts 5, 38 to 39, I say to you, stay away, meaning don't persecute from these men, and let them alone for if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But it's of, if it's of God, you won't be able to overthrow them. Or else you may even find yourself fighting against God. I don't want to find myself fighting against God. Like I said, people are finding the Lord in Christmas service. The Lord, the Jewish Messiah, at Christmas services and Easter services. We have believers here who stay away from Christmas and Easter like the plague. To you, I say your conviction is honored here. We have believers who keep Christmas and Easter still in their homes. To you, I say your traditions are honored here. There is not an ounce, if I could just be candid, there's not an ounce of me that feels that we should have a congregational mandate to yank Christians out of the church. Our mandate is to pull people out of the world and have them saved, Jewish people and Gentile, not to pull the saved out of the church. I don't have, we don't need to clap. Let's keep a humble posture. That is not the mandate of the congregation. I feel very strongly about it. I don't want it to be that mandate. Now, we don't celebrate these holidays as a community. We celebrate only the biblical holidays. And as I said, they're yours, you Gentiles, to partake of. They're yours to partake of. The rich, richness of the olive tree 
is yours to have if you choose to have it. Romans 4, 14, 5 says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. That's how I feel about Christmas. Each one should be convinced in their own mind about what they do or not. You will never get judgment here from me or from the leaders of this congregation or told that you're a pagan. And I want to end this sermon with a little analogy that you may have heard before from the book of Ruth. We know the main character of Ruth, or one of the main characters, is a woman named Naomi. Do you know that? So Naomi in Hebrew is Naami. Hidden in that word is the word Ami. Ami means my people. Naomi represents the Jewish people. Her husband was Elimelech. That means my God king. She was married to God. Elimelech died. Now, God doesn't die, but we see a separation between Naomi, Naomi, the Jewish people, and God. Her children died. So she's left desolate. This is a picture of the Jewish people. Her two daughter-in-laws, Ruth and Orpah, are two Gentiles, Moabitesses, two Gentiles. One of them turned away and said, I'm going back to my own land, sayonara, mom. But the other clung to broken Naomi, broken Israel, and said, I ain't going nowhere. Where you go, I go. Where you stay, I stay. Your people are my people. Your God, my God. And wherever you're buried, I will be buried. And may God deal harshly with me if anything but death separates us that was her attitude. In this time, you're invited to be a Ruth. And remember, it's Ruth that wound up marrying the kinsman redeemer, Boaz. You're invited to be a Ruth in this hour. Historical Christianity intentionally divorced itself from Judaism. Modern-day Christianity is relinking itself. We see it. We see it. We see love for Israel amongst evangelical Protestant churches. We see Jewish symbolism even entering into certain church services. We, rec we see Christians, Gentile Christians, recognizing that Judaism is not just a separate world religion, but it's a part of your heritage. And we see this progressing. It is a work of God, and you are invited to participate. Not an obligation. You're invited. It's an invitation. Next week's sermon will be about our tenant, about our unwavering support for Israel. That will be next week's sermon. In Yeshua's name, amen.